said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you. Welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking with Dr. Christopher Ryan. Today I'm joined by Carsey Blanton, a famous and fascinating person <laughs> with whom I've just had lunch and we try not to talk about anything at all interesting. So now you can let it all go. Okay. Let I don't think out. we succeeded though, No, we did cover some interesting territory, but we can, we can fake it and pretend we haven't talked about some of those things. All right. <laughs> and some of those things are not appropriate for the podcast. <laughs> exactly. So uh, let me tell you the story about how I got in touch with you. Okay. Interesting. Uh, about uh, six weeks ago, I gave an interview to a guy uh, who's doing a film about the injustices of the American justice system as it applies to um, what are called registered sex offenders. Mm -hmm. This guy, uh, his, he was an altar boy in high school, you know, very good rule-following young man in Texas. Virgin, of course, as the, those types of boys tend to be. And um, at 19, I think it was his first ever sexual experience he met a girl online she was 15 he went over to her house her mother came home caught them in bed together called the cops and now for the rest of his life this guy is a registered sex offender mm -hmm. it was completely consensual it was not the girl's first sexual experience and uh, I think he was on probation for five or seven years and he had to go to weekly therapy sessions with uh, guys who really had, you know, raped children and done all these horrible things. And the beginning of each therapy session, he had to say, I am a rapist. I forcibly, you know, inserted my penis into this girl. You right. know, he had to lie mm -hmm. about what he had done. It was like some sort of gulag archipelago situation. Mm -hmm. What's that have to do with Carsey Blanton, I hear people wondering. Well, <laughs> I was not the 15-year-old girl, you for were the not. record. <laughs> uh, but after the interview, um, I asked this guy what he'd been doing since he'd left Texas. And he said, oh, I was you know, living in Virginia for a while with uh, my mentor who wrote a book called um, Radical Honesty. And I thought, yeah, that rings a bell. I saw This American Life episode that profiled him when he was running against Eric Cantor in Virginia. It was a seven-minute segment that uh, I'll never forget. It was, it was so charming and interesting. Um, this guy running for Congress who never lies. He refuses to lie. And his philosophy is that most of our problems are the result of lying to ourselves or to other people. So he's got this philosophy of radical honesty. Anyway, I was like, wow, yeah, I've heard of that guy. Okay. A few weeks later, I get an email out of the blue from Miss Carsey Blanton or Ms. or Mrs. I'm not sure what, what you call yourself. <laughs> uh, uh, talking is just with a link to an essay about uh, sexuality, being a, a sexual woman and trying um, to overcome the sort of culturally imposed shame around all that. And I read this essay and then you and I talked about music and you sent me some songs or I, I downloaded some songs and uh, we ended up talking about how one of your songs would be an amazing theme song for this podcast. That's right. 
Oh, you hear that jet flying over? This is like, you know, the New York Open with the jets <laughs> flying over. We're in Brooklyn. Uh, and I, I posted the song on my Facebook thing, the Facebook feed for Sex at Dawn. And somebody wrote in and said, yeah, I love her music. And by the way, did you know her father wrote the book? <laughs> on honesty. <laughs> on honesty. He wrote the book. He wrote the book on honesty. I was like, wow, that's pretty weird. Yeah. These two very direct connections to your father in a couple of weeks. Yep. Yeah. So that's her song that you hear at the beginning of the podcast and at the end of the podcast. And now we're going to hear who the hell wrote that song and what were you thinking? That song, I love that song because it's, it's carpe diem. It, the whole song is like, what are you waiting for? Yeah. Everyone you've ever known is heading for a headstone. I don't mean to give the end away, but you're going to die someday or one day. I'm not <laughs> yep. sure what it is. Okay. Yeah, I won't sing, but I definitely know all the lyrics. All right. I've been I've been singing it to myself for weeks now. That's great. Well, yeah. I sort of have the official version and the unofficial version of that song. So oh, really? Okay. The official version, which is sort of a cute story that I tell at my gigs, and it's partly true, is that I was in New Orleans, and um, I met a guy, and he started hitting on me, and he was sort of using the the usual tactics and they weren't working and so he said hey you're gonna die one day so you should <laughs> really you should really card. enjoy yourself yeah so in the official version i don't go home with him and i write a song for him instead but uh -huh. in real life i did in fact go home with the guy actually in real life he was a friend of mine and we had several conversations about it and i'd actually been working on that song for months actually for years i've been wanting to write a song with the refrain you're gonna die one day right and i couldn't figure out how to sort of wrap it in enough context to make it not too jarring of a phrase right because as a songwriter you know one of my main tactics is to kind of get something really edgy into each of my songs hmm. but i try to cushion it in either humor or like some really beautiful language or a sweet melody or something so that it doesn't right. feel like just a smack to the it's face not too obvious <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah so you said he was using the usual tactics what, what are the usual tactics well you know i don't know actually i mean in in real life we were just hanging out oh, we were okay. spending a lot of time together in new orleans he's a dancer yeah. and um we had worked on some projects together and kind of been walking around the city he was riding me riding <laughs> his bike around the city and i was riding on the handlebars and oh. he would sing to me. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. <laughs> yeah. That's one of my that favorite one movie of his scenes. <laughs> Do you know that movie? No, I haven't oh, seen it. Oh, it's um, it's a classic. It's uh, Paul Newman and Robert Redford, and they're these two sort of um, uh, bank robbers who don't want to hurt anybody and have a good sense of humor right. and just. And it's a very interesting film in, in light of what we're talking about in general here um, because there's this scene where they're visiting a woman that they know. They're sort of hiding out at her place out in the countryside somewhere. And it's actually the scene where raindrops keep falling on my head. Mm -hmm. That song was introduced. <laughs> and it was written for the film. Mm -hmm. And so they're riding around with her on the handlebar. Right. Like one guy's riding around with her on the handlebar. The other guy's watching from the window. And yeah. then you see her with the other guy. And and it becomes clear in this musical sequence that they're both sleeping with her. Oh. And it's cool. Wow. Everybody's cool. But it's, you know, it's a 70s film, right? right? Where you could do stuff like that. But it's never explicitly stated. But you, uh, you do see her in bed with one guy at one point, mm -hmm. And then the other guy comes in. And it's obvious that he's not like an interloper. You right, know what I right, mean? Right, right, right. 
Um, and hey, Paul Newman and Robert Redford, who's not going to go to bed with both exactly. of them if she can you could set do it worse. up? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> than either of them, let alone both. <laughs> let alone both, exactly. Well, I yeah. asked about the, the normal uh, techniques because um, the last person I interviewed, I think, for this podcast was Neil Strauss. Mm hmm. Who is the sort of guru of pickup artists? The pickup artist guy, right? Uh, the the game, yes. hero, the game. I, right. A good friend of mine is a is a devotee of his. Oh really? Oh yeah. Well, he's an interesting cat. I have to say, I, I've uh, spent some time getting to know him on a personal level, and. I mean, the first question I asked him in the interview is, as I think people will have heard, if if not, look in the archives. I think he's his interview will be the first one that's launched. Uh, you know, I said to him, okay, what do you say to people who say, you're just teaching losers how to manipulate women? Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, because that's what a lot of people, including myself, mm -hmm. thought that book was all about before yeah. I'd actually read it. Now I'm about halfway through it mm -hmm. and I see... That it's uh, it's a lot more than that. It's it's a uh, it's a discussion of male insecurity. Interesting. And the sort of twisted, desperate space that a lot of men can get into because they just don't know how to deal with women. And they, uh, he says, I don't remember if he said it in conversation or in the book that guys who have their first sexual experience at like 14 or under mm -hmm. are much more relaxed about women and sexuality i've noticed that and men who don't like the longer it waits the more anxiety twisted it gets yeah there's a lot of anxiety around it so then it just becomes this mountain they can't uh wow this this uh, little machine here picks up those airplanes Does you, it? yeah i've I got headphones me. on it's like <laughs> Apologies for that, but I'm not going to pause it every time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, my mom and I have been having a really interesting related conversation because, um, so on the album that Smoke Alarm was on, there's another song called Backbone, which mm. is, uh, the refrain yeah. is, you give your heart, but I'd rather have your backbone. Right. And I wrote that song with a more specific uh, sort of situation in mind than a lot of my songs which is that I, I kept meeting men who um, were afraid of me and that was my my initial and strongest impression of them was that they were afraid of me hmm. and so some of them are hitting on me some of them are just trying to be my friends some of them right. are fans or whatever but their approach to me is is clearly out of fear right well, um, why just well, because you're a woman or because you're famous or artistic and what? I think it's because I'm a woman and because I'm a powerful woman who's assertive so I'm not a woman in a way that you know I'm not particularly coy and sweet and kind of you know receptive hmm. and so um, I think a lot of men especially if they are attracted to me and are trying to approach me they kind of get into a little panic about what the proper way to approach me is. Right. Um, so I was having this discussion with my mom because we've been we've watched a few movies together in the last couple of weeks. I've been visiting my mom, and um, we keep noticing in newer movies there's a theme of male insecurity and right. fear of women. And she was saying when she first heard my song Backbone, she was like, "That's a weird thing to write a song about. Like that seems like such a you know unusual experience." And then she's realized that it's partly a generational 
difference. Yeah, the Judd Apatow exactly. genre seems to All be about, about ditzy dudes yeah. who don't know what to do, right. and then Russell Brand shows up and shows them. <laughs> right. I've got a friend who takes yoga in Hollywood. He's a director, actor, mm-hmm. cool guy, and uh, he was saying about he's, he does this yoga class in Hollywood. And he's like, man, and you wouldn't believe the women in this class. You know, it's like generally yoga classes, there are right. a lot of hot women, but in Hollywood, it's right, like right. wow. <laughs> I said, so you hook up with some of these women? He said, no, man. Russell Brand is in the class. He's screwing them all. It's like, Russell, you know, calm down a little bit, brother. Leave some for the Jeez, rest of them. Exactly. Yeah. He's the, the Mitt Romney of yoga women. It's horrible. What? <laughs> Doesn't pay his taxes. Takes oh, all the money, you know. I you know, it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, so I think we've been discussing it a little bit, and I think it's partly a, a post-feminist reaction. There are mm. a lot of men of my generation are so afraid of being misogynistic right. that they come off as just wimps. Yeah. You know? And I it's sort it. of, it's an epidemic, I think. Because it's it not is. attractive. And it, yeah. and it's, it also doesn't uh, project confidence and it makes them not seem trustworthy. So right. I feel like it, it really changes the field of available men. Because they're trying to tell you what they think you want to hear them say. Exactly. versus just saying what they're feeling and yeah. yeah and and yeah yeah it's it's a shame because a lot of that is well-intentioned mm-hmm. you know they're trying not to be offensive but yeah i, I went through a phase like that mm-hmm. in college i was taking women's studies classes right, and, right. <laughs> you know, uh, i even took a modern dance class which Very was nice. probably the nadir of my existence <laughs> but the only reason i did that actually was because the the teacher of the modern dance class was, was hot so girl hot and then I, I know yeah and like the absolute worst thing i could do to impress this modern dance teacher would be to like prance around in her class you know in my leotard yeah yeah and then it turned out she was living with a guy named Snake. So wow. I really didn't, didn't have, have a, a shot chance. in hell with her. <laughs> yeah. I, but I was ambitious. Yeah. I think I wrote her a letter at four o'clock in the morning. And like you do. Yeah. 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 yeah but I, I've been thinking, you know, I got really into that series Mad Men. Mm-hmm. And I kept wondering why I was so fascinated with it. Because it's basically a soap opera. It's like a well-acted soap opera where everyone wears yeah. amazing clothes. And <laughs> one of the things that struck me about it is that that ideal of masculinity in the 1950s and 60s was so different than the ideal of masculinity now. And in a way, whatever the target is for masculinity, you're going to be faking it a little. And I sort of wish that men were faking the Don Draper, like wearing a nice suit and smoking cigars masculinity instead of the like, I don't even know what the model is now. Alan but the, like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. The very sensitive, sort of neurotic, yeah. you know, trying to not step on the toes of the women around you. And the thing is, what, <laughs> men out there, listen to me. Trust me on this. Women like to have their toes stepped on every once in a while, if you know how to do it, you know? <laughs> well, Don't break them, but, you know, a little, a little assertiveness goes a long way. Well, and also, I think there's a confusion about confidence and power and whether those are masculine qualities and and i think that confidence and power are not gendered you can be a Mm. confident powerful woman who's feminine right you can be a confident powerful man who's very masculine right and i feel like you know pre-feminism women had to sacrifice their power in the interest of femininity and now i think it's swung a little bit the other way and men are having to sacrifice their power in order to like be good men quote unquote yeah, but the problem with that is, you know, I think of it in terms of domestication. I see so many couples where 
you know, they get together, the guys, you know, okay, first thing he has to do is sell his motorcycle and, you know, <laughs> shave every day and, yeah. you know, pee sitting down and whatever, whatever it is. Stop watching porn. <laughs> stop watching porn. <laughs> or pretend to stop right. watching porn. And, uh, you know, the problem is women love wolves, right. but they... A lot of them want to turn their wolves into dogs, right. and then it's like they don't respect them anymore. And you know, it's like, and I'm probably going to sound like a misogynistic asshole here. I'm sorry. Go for I'm it. sorry, but women are that. fucking confusing, right? <laughs> women are like we were talking on the walk over here. Um, about hormones mm -hmm. you know and I said something about you said you have a the particularly interesting cocktail of hormones <laughs> and I said it's going to change as you age and you said hell it changes every month yeah. right every and that's week. true every <laughs> hour you know <laughs> yeah. so that I think makes women um it's almost like if you're talking about Hollywood, it's like women are on on, on like a what's that thing called? Uh, like a camera that changes position. Right. You know, it's on a crane. A woman's <laughs> perspective is like a crane camera position, and men are a fixed position. Right, right. So, you know, coming from this fixed position, men are like, "What the hell is going on with this woman?" Like yesterday she said this, today she says that. You know, it's. You know, she wanted to have sex last week and now she's like not even interested in me. What's going on? Mm -hmm. Men need to learn that women are mobile. Yeah, yeah. And men tend to be fixed. And the thing is that one of the things that a lot of women like in men is their fixity. Yeah. So if you're constantly shifting around trying to adapt to where she's coming from, you're taking that away from her. Right. Then she has to be the anchor. And there's nothing I hate more than having to be the steady one in the relationship. Right. I find it totally boring. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and if he's if he's fixed and he's like the rock, yeah. that also liberates you to enjoy your exactly. floating around and changes and all that because right. you know he knows you and right. he, he takes the average of all your different moods and you know that's that's who he loves <laughs> exactly, right yeah. yeah back to the domestication topic i find that really interesting because i think there's something analogous with women which is the sort of madonna whore complex right. Definitely. that you know men are looking for a certain thing in a girlfriend or a sex partner and a totally different thing in a right. wife and so i think that in a way the things that attract us to each other then become the things that we try to eradicate when we try to settle down. Yeah. And I think that's a huge problem. It's a cause of a lot of misery in a lot of relationships. Yeah, especially because, you know, if we're successful, if men are successful, then they find the Madonna that they marry right. within hours that they're missing the whore you know right and then you've got the whole problem like okay i married the madonna but god is she boring yeah you know <laughs> yeah so yeah reed mahalko who i interviewed a couple of days ago he has a he's a sex educator and uh he says uh we should always date our own species mm. you know figure out who you are, what species you are, and then like stick to your own species because otherwise yeah. people get hurt, you know? It's funny too because I think there is some truth to the idea that opposites attract, but mm. I don't think that means that they should partner. Yeah, that's a <laughs> good Because I know in, in my own history that I've dated a lot of people who were not my own species and I found them very fascinating. But then, inevitably, they try to change me into their species and right. I try to change them into my species. Right. I think that's, a lot of my songs are on that topic. Huh. <laughs> yeah, so if, if people, like, are you and I into uh, inherently opposed 
professions in the sense that I'm trying to get people to figure their shit out and you're writing songs about people who haven't? I don't think so. It's kind of like Jon Stewart says about The Daily Show. He's like, well... He doesn't care whether there's a Republican or a Democratic administration because there's plenty to make fun of uh, on, okay. on both sides. So I feel like we're not in danger of eradicating all the conflict <laughs> that I write about. No, you know? no. Even the power of the book couldn't <laughs> yeah. do that. Yeah. yeah, I don't think that's... I mean, certainly not in my lifetime. That's not going to happen, <laughs> is it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, I've just forgotten what what I was going to ask you, John. Oh, blues. What is it about blues guitarists that women hate? What? Every damn blues guitarist is whining about how his woman up and left him. Oh. And I would be like, you know, if I were a woman. I was going to say, women love blues that's guitarists. That's what I would have thought. But they're always bitching about how the women, you know, she left me. She's with my friend. She da 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 I got no money. It's like, dude, you're a blues guitarist. If you can't get laid, who the hell's getting laid? What are you whining about? Yeah. Well, you know. The, the blues is the sort of classic example, but really all genres of music are about the same thing. They're about heartbreak. I want her. Well, yeah, they're, they're about longing. They're really just all about longing. So yeah. it's either longing for somebody that you see in the distance that you don't right. have right. or longing for somebody that you used to have that you don't have anymore. Right. right? Who's in another kind of distance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. it's either you're trying to get somebody or you're trying to get somebody back. Those are pretty much the two options. <laughs> and I think it's because that... For me, at least, the the experience of longing is very related to my creativity. So that feeling above any other feeling. I mean, certainly there are powerful feelings like joy is very powerful, but it's rare that I get inspired to write a song when Mm. I'm feeling joyful because I just want to sit around and feel joyful. There's only one ode to joy. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Or what a wonderful world. It's written out of that same thing. There's only a few of those, though. But um, I think when you're experiencing longing, there's a, there's an agitation that goes with it, and mm. that's can be expressed with creativity. So yeah. I think for a lot of writers, when you're sitting around wishing somebody could come back to you or that you could be with somebody, you can distract yourself by writing about it or painting about it or dancing about it or whatever yeah. your thing is. Right. And when you're just in a pure, you know, time of happiness and contentment, you don't want to be distracted. <laughs> yeah. There's a book called The Erotic Mind by Jack Morin, I think, M-O-R-I-N. And he's talking about passion. And he says that passion, he's talking about, you know, sexual passion between people. He says passion is when you have attraction plus an obstacle. Mm-hmm. Then you've got passion. Right. Right. And you can, it sounds like what you're saying is the same is true of artistic passion, creative yeah. passion. You've got hunger for something it's blocked and therefore it it gets expressed and it creates all these sorts of interesting thoughts yeah yeah there are really only a few songs that have ever been written they've just been written over and over and over again yeah (laughs) yeah Uh, apparently there's a quote from marie antoinette's dressmaker someone said something like oh this is a completely new dress fashion or whatever and she said there's nothing new except what has been forgotten (laughs) That's great. Yeah. That's exactly right. You know, and that occurs to me a lot because, you know, when I'm doing normal interviews, which this is not, people... (laughs) (laughs) I take that as a compliment. (laughs) People uh, often ask me, like, where my ideas for songs come from. Uh And one thing that's true that I can say is that um, I listen to a lot of old songs right. and that a lot of my ideas are just rehashing songs that already existed hey you and Bob Dylan sister exactly well and it's funny because people you know got on Bob Dylan's case a lot and still do because he's written these autobiographies you know chronicles it's basically just 
a music uh, encyclopedia. Right. His autobiography is just a collection of everything he's ever listened to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Know? And I think that's because you can plumb the depths of musical history and you come up with new stuff every time. And especially now, I mean, I'm always shocked at how few people are aware of, like, the you know, beautiful songs that Cole Porter and Gershwin and all mm. these guys wrote. Yeah. There's just a wealth of songs out there and a lot of them are forgotten. And so you can, I can find a song that I love and literally sit down and try to rewrite it. Yeah. And I have a song that sounds new. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting. I don't know if you follow, geez, I, I apologize again for the airplanes. Uh, the, Add some ambiance. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it sounds like we're sitting like, you know, at the runway of JFK here. <laughs> <laughs> Planes are coming in every two minutes. Um, what are you talking about? The guy who just got in a lot of trouble. Uh, I can't remember his name. He just got, like, lost his job at the New Yorker and <laughs> uh, humiliated. He was a staff writer in Scientific American and um, just really went down in flames because it turned out he'd, make an, he'd made up a couple of quotes from Bob Dylan. Uh. It's so ironic that Dylan... <laughs> I mean, he probably thought, shit, if I, can't, if I can't make up a Bob Dylan quote, you know, he's got a whole career of making shit up and yep. copying things. And, yeah. He also says insane. some crazy off-the-cuff shit all the time. And I, I sometimes wonder when I read his interviews if he at all remembers what he said. Yeah. It sort of seems like he just... Or cares. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you must reach a certain I'm level. I'm surprised anybody found out that he had made up those quotes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it, it turned out like he he messed up because he said something about how he'd had an interview uh, with him, and then the fact checker or somebody um, called Dylan's manager Jeff, and the manager said, "I don't know who this person is. Yeah. He never had an interview, and that mm -hmm. everything fell apart." Jeff, do you know, you know, I do actually know him. the The guy who manages Bob Dylan is the same guy who manages Paul Simon. Uh huh. I think he just, if you're that good, just good short musicians. That's his <laughs> his specialty, right? I didn't say. <laughs> is Dylan short? That. I don't know. I don't know. I'm never. Paul Simon's very small, isn't he's he? He's a he's a small. You opened for Paul Simon. I did. Was that one gig or a tour? It or was how does two that work? gigs. Two so gigs. It was in between. A so gig he had and you a back. That's a good sign. <laughs> you didn't completely screw it up. That's right. Yeah. Now how how is the crowd? Now I've seen a, you know a fair number of acts in my day, and often the opening band. Mm -hmm. um, gets a lot of shit because mm -hmm. the crowd is like, who the hell are you? Get the main act out here, right? Right. But I imagine a Paul Simon crowd is a little more polite than that. And, and also, you're great. So That's what I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> and powerful <laughs> and intimidating. I'm, I'm starting to get scared here, brother. Well, I do think... I do think that crowds don't want to like you if you're an opener, so you yeah. have to win them so over. So you start at a deficit. Yes, That's but a I, tough but I thing. think yeah. there's a there's a craft to that, and it's something I practice a lot because I generally tour as an opener. Oh, as a right. Yeah. So if you go into it knowing that you really need to come out busting to get their attention, yeah, it can be done, and and it is an easier crowd because you know it's a theater and it's hushed and it's mm. sold out. All the seats are full. They're the sitting. Are they're down. not standing. Exactly. Right? The sounds fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Right. So yeah, those shows were some of my favorite that I've ever played. Not just because I was sharing a bill with Paul Simon, but because. Um, the, the quality of the attention was amazing. Hmm. You know, it was totally silent, and there were 3,500 people in the room. Wow. You know, you could hear a pin drop. And wow. I sold, like, 600 CDs. Wow. <laughs> Nicely done. So, yeah, it was 
It was wonderful. So how come I paid for breakfast? What the hell? It's 600 <laughs> CDs. That's the 600 CDs I've sold this year. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Where, where was that? The other um, shows? There, it was we? sort of funny how it worked out. They There was an opener, a band called the Punch Brothers, who's uh-huh. considerably more famous than I am, um, booked for his whole tour as the opener, and um, they couldn't do two dates. So they were about a week apart. One was in Richmond, Virginia, and one was in Newark, New Jersey. Uh-huh. And they and his manager, who I know through, through some other people, Jeff, kind of threw me those two dates. He was like, hey, we have two dates on the tour. Oh, beautiful. So that was how it worked out. That's great. Yeah. So what else do, do people ask you in typical interviews? <laughs> <laughs> we just put this on autopilot. Right. Why do you waste your time? All right. Thank you for listening to the show. Uh, you can donate uh, to Tangentially Speaking at feralaudio.com. That's F-E-R-A-L audio.com. Uh, you can use the Tangentially Speaking affiliate links there for your Amazon purchases, which means that I'll get a cut of uh, anything you spend at Amazon.com that we'll use to support the podcast. It doesn't cost you anything extra. It just takes a bite out of Amazon's profit margin. So uh, let's all take a bite out of that. Check out other shows at feralaudio.com while you're there, like Conversations with Matt Dwyer, which is always amusing and my personal favorite the duncan trussell family hour which is off the hook week after week subscribe on itunes to tangentially speaking and leave us a review if you like the show if you don't like the show just fuck off and don't say a damn thing about it please uh good reviews help the uh, help the rankings and that brings more attention and um i guess somewhere somehow will be of benefit to the world let's get back to the show now no, I wanted to ask you, if, if you're comfortable talking about it, I want to ask you what it was like growing up with your dad. Sure. That must be, right, you lived with him until you were 13. Mm-hmm. He's been married to five women? Mm-hmm. That's right. Done your well, research. I, I know a lot about your dad. Yep. Yeah, yeah, from that, that segment that you haven't seen. Yeah. I mean, maybe you shouldn't, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it Like opens- a lot of people who like to talk a big game about marriage and relationships my dad has been married five times uh, <laughs> he's on the good he's on the the winning side though i think i like the game that he talks better than you yeah. know newt gingrich has also been married five times i believe oh really yeah i was standing behind uh Callista, you know with mm-hmm. the crazy hair <laughs> in the airport i was flying out of washington once i found myself standing right behind her in the line for uh donuts or something wow. dunkin donuts <laughs> And I had a copy of my book with me. I thought, I should really give this to her, you know? And she needs to know that stuff. Yeah. And Newt, I mean, Newt, come on. Uh, but then I thought, you know, I might as well just drop it in the garbage. Yeah, you know, if they don't want gay people to get married, they're not going to want to hear any of that shit that's in your book. No, I don't think so. <laughs> that is not a welcome. I met a guy on a flight. We were talking about, I guess before we started recording, we were talking about being in the LAX and people, you know, thinking you're movie stars and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I found myself sitting next to uh, an actor who I guess I shouldn't say his name, but he was a child actor. And mm-hmm. He's been on a lot of TV shows and movies and now he's in his 40s probably. Gary Coleman. 
I'm not going to say. <laughs> but no, it wasn't him. That's his in my head now. Uh, so go on. Well, you can you hold that in your head, but that's not him. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, we we started chatting. I, I didn't recognize him. Even after he told me who he was, I still didn't know who he was. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I was the only one there who didn't know because all these girls were coming and asking for his autograph. Right, and it was right. this whole scene. And he and I ended up sitting next to each other on the flight. He was in first class. I wasn't. But he came back and there was an empty seat next to me. And we chatted mm-hmm. for like seven hours okay, <laughs> to London. And at that point, um, Sexodon was in galleys. Mm-hmm. And we talked about it. And he was like, my God, there's got to be, you know, we can make a feature film. There's got documentaries. I know lots of people who would be fascinated by this. Oh, this is fantastic. Oh, my God. And, and he was living in Barcelona at the time. Wow. Briefly, he, like for a year, he took a break and he was living there. And so I gave him a, a copy of the galleys. And he said, man, I'm going skiing in Switzerland next week. I'm going to read this. I'll call you when I get back to Barcelona. We're going to have to talk about this. This is just incredible. Incredible. Oh, my God. So I got back home. And I, was told, I was like, Casilda, Jesus, this is nuts. The book's yeah. not even out yet. And there's this Hollywood dude who's like right. completely into it. And, ah. So he never called. Right. Right. Never fucking called at all. I thought, what a weird thing. Like, Because mm-hmm. he knew what it was about. We talked right. about it for hours. And then it turned like a year later. A friend of mine was going to be speaking at an event in D.C. for veterans of the Afghan-Iraq war. Mm-hmm. And this guy was also going to be speaking there. Mm-hmm. So I said to my friend, hey, if you see this actor, ask him what the fuck, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> so so my friend Stanley uh, did. He saw him and he went over to him. He was with his wife. And, and uh, he, Stanley said, hey, you, you met a friend of mine on a plane about a year ago. Right. He gave you a copy of his book and da-da-da. And um, what happened? Whatever happened with that? And the actor sort of looked at his feet and his wife said... I threw that book in the trash. No one talks to him about sex except me. Wow. Yeah. Talk about domestication. Yeah. That is deep. Yeah. (laughs) Domesticated and... What's the word? Castrated. Castrated. Thank you. (laughs) I was making the castration. The universal (laughs) castration motion. Yeah, that's right. Deaf people now. Oh, castrated. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Poor guy. Jeez. Anyway, I don't know what the hell that was about. Yeah. But the the podcast is called Tangentially Speaking for a reason. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't want to try to fight the the tendency, you know. Um anyway, we're gonna talk about yeah, what's it like to grow up with a father? who doesn't lie did you lie to him I mean all 13 year old girls lie to their fathers don't they yeah well first of all okay let me think of how to phrase this (laughs) I I don't think that he lies but I think that he has his own neuroses and pathologies like anybody does right and that it's not like he is 100% transparent at all times Right. That's a good distinction to make. Yeah. Yeah. And so, in a way, it's like having any other father, except that, Hmm. you know, a little more interesting (laughs) in some ways. But Um, he's definitely a very smart guy. He's very smart, and I love his ideas, and Mm. he's excellent at what he does, and I've always felt that. Even, you know, in times where myself and other people in our family have judged him for his behavior, I think we've all been aware that he's really, he's answered a calling. And Mm. that it's sort of, he has a unique set of skills to 
put forth these ideas in the world and he does it very well he's an excellent therapist he's excellent at leading you know these workshops where he teaches people how to be honest and he's helped a lot of people become self-aware and sort of find a willingness to be really honest with the people in their lives Um, and his you know the way that he handles his own relationships at times is you know transparent and he totally goes by his own book and at other times he doesn't you know and so I think like anybody who's intimate with somebody who's sort of a guru in their field you get to see a little bit of the Hmm. the underlying very well put democracy wow. or whatever it is yeah, yeah. and I don't say any of that as a criticism of him I'm very yeah. close to my dad and yeah. I love him and again I love his work it's more just that the from the outside you'd think oh wow that must be great to have a dad like that and from the inside it's a mixed bag yeah. like, like any parent all bags are mixed yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. When, you, when you really look into them yeah. A couple things that I loved about growing up um, with my dad's work going on. Um, so my the house I grew up in in Virginia was my dad's retreat center. So right. it was where he would hold his workshops. So every couple of weeks, he'd have fifteen or twenty people come into the house, and he and they'd do an eight day workshop. I guess it was every month, once a month, they'd do an eight day workshop, which is. You know, there's a series of exercises and some different kinds of group therapy. And he's basically teaching people how to be honest with each other, is the idea. And certain parts of it I found really fascinating. Like uh, part of the workshop is each participant tells their whole life story in an hour and a half. Hmm. So every night, two of the participants tell the whole story of their life. And from the time I was about eight, I would listen to all the life stories every time there's a workshop. Yeah. Um, That's a hell of an education. Exactly. And I've, I still feel like I probably wouldn't be a, a writer if I hadn't done that. Right. Because it really gave me uh, a very wide perspective on the human experience. Right. You know, from before I hit puberty, I, I understood that the way to live was extremely, uh, you know, up for discussion. Uh, undetermined. <laughs> undetermined, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And did, at what point did you have a sense that you wanted to be an artist of some sort or a musician specifically? Um, well, I started playing and writing when I was 14. Are either of your parents musicians? My parents are both uh, sort of amateur musicians. My mom actually is a songwriter. She wrote songs for a few years and sort of pitched them in Nashville. Neither oh. um, of them were ever really professional musicians or performers Uh but there was always a lot of music and a lot of live music in the house they always had a lot of musician friends (laughs) come by you know something i was thinking um when we were talking in the restaurant before coming that that's very cool i don't know how unusual it is because i don't know a lot of i mean i do know a lot of of musicians i guess but not a lot of singers Mm -hmm. um your voice seems like you Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Do, Thank you. do you ever do you hear that from yeah. people? Yeah, and that is something I value in singers, and I think that's why it comes across. It's a true voice, and I think a lot of singers, like Mick Jagger. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know if I've never met Mick Jagger, but <laughs> the voice sounds like a like a put on. Yeah. I mean, first he's singing an American accent, so right. already that's not him, <laughs> right. right? But and he's a great singer. I'm yeah. not, of course, he's uh, you know he's amazing, but. 
but some you know I hear some singers and it's like they've created a voice mm-hmm. and that's it's the way you know a lot of public people they create a persona and yeah. so he's a singer so it's the voice is the is the creation yeah but your voice sounds naked it sounds right. like who you are it's, yeah. it's a different kind of thing it's yeah. Cool. yeah I think like anything else it's what makes a voice interesting is if it's an accurate portrayal of that person including all the the weirdnesses of the person you know yeah. like my favorite singer is Billie Holiday and she has uh, one of the weirdest voices ever recorded yeah. but when you hear interviews with her that is her voice that's the and way she talks she talked that way yeah. yeah that's what it is you talk in your singing voice <laughs> right. in a way yeah right yeah. well yeah it's the yeah. same voice and that's that is something I value because I think you know part of what makes art art enduring and interesting for long periods of time is that sense of authenticity or soulfulness right and I think that's just a matter of being willing to embrace whatever kind of voice you were born with right <laughs> you know your father has this thing also in the workshop where everyone's naked yeah and talks about their insecurities with their bodies yeah speaking of nakedness <laughs> right have you ever like had a dream about being on stage and like oh I'm naked do you ever um, have those like high school dreams everyone has I don't think I had those and you know I didn't go to school I don't know if we have oh, discussed no, this there's a whole home, other can of worms yeah oh. yeah um, and I don't remember I've had anxiety dreams but only like do you have vaccinations weird ones I have vaccinations <laughs> <laughs> my parents are an interesting mix of oh. hippie and sort of you know highly educated alright <laughs> so who taught you um well so the kind of education I had is what we called unschooling, which is sort of a subset of the homeschooling movement. Mm-hmm. So unschooling is a, something that a term that was coined to distinguish that type of education from Christian homeschoolers. And you have brothers and sisters. Yes, how, I do. And how many? My, well, oh, so it's I have, complicated. It's complicated. Right, right. Due to all the marriages. All yeah, yeah. Yeah. I have one full brother, um, my younger brother, and he yeah. was homeschooled for part of his life as right. well. Um, so most of the homeschoolers in this country are Seventh-day Adventists or other kinds of uh, just very serious Christians who want to keep their kids sheltered so that they don't learn evolution and stuff like that. Um, And then there's a tiny percentage that are unschoolers, which is more about educational freedom. So my mom was interested in keeping me out of school because she didn't she wanted me to be able to learn about what was interesting to me rather than have Mm. kind of the current standards imposed on my education. Right. But you you had to learn to read and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Well, I actually right? learned to read really early. Um, I started reading when I was three, and I think that might be one of the things that made my mom feel comfortable with keeping me at home. She's like, okay, she's got reading down. She's got the hunger to learn, too. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah. So it's, just a, it's not a question of stimulating your curiosity. It's just directing it. Exactly. Which really, I, I, I don't have kids, but don't you think all kids have curiosity you know it's a basic survival skill of the species yeah well i mean obviously that's a sad sad thing i know i think everyone agrees that there are a lot of problems with the school system but not a lot of people think of it as a problem at the very bedrock of the idea of education which is that if you don't teach people something they won't learn it which I think is a fallacy. People yeah. are born wanting to learn all as much as is available, right? Yeah. I don't know. Parents who are listening to this are going to hate me from now on. But <laughs> I've also... I, I can never understand, like, forcing kids to eat. Mm-hmm. Eat. You have to eat. It's an animal. The kid's a fucking animal. It'll eat. It's yeah. hungry. It doesn't want to starve to death, right? <laughs> yeah. So if your kid isn't eating... 
either you're, there's something seriously wrong with that kid, you know, yeah. in which case maybe better to just, you know, take it out in the woods. No, right. I, I didn't say that. No, I didn't say that. Uh, <laughs> Getting them back on the parents' good side. <laughs> no, I'm, uh, no, never mind. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't understand, like, why would you need to force an animal to eat or to sleep or to do you know or to, to shit or yeah i mean it's like it's a it's an animal yeah you know it's it's a and it's a homo sapiens of course it's gonna learn yeah well an education is just one aspect of the sort of wrong-headed beliefs that a lot of people have about parenting yeah um which i think is a huge part of what you've you know what you're talking about from mm. your future book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Civilized to Death. Coming Civilized soon to, death. to a bookstore near you. Not exactly. really soon. but <laughs> Coming eventually. Coming eventually. <laughs> coming when I get around to it. <laughs> or six months after I get around to it. Yeah. To a bookstore near you. Yeah. I was talking to a friend about education the other day. Uh, he's got a um, 16-year-old son. Super good-looking guy. Very precocious. Very, very smart. Mm-hmm. You know. And his dad and I met each other when we were 15. Mm-hmm. You know, his dad taught me to smoke marijuana and drink beer. I taught him Bad how guy. to drive. Yeah, he's a musician, actually. He's a great, great musical genius, this guy. Sharing pot with the teenagers of the world. That's yeah. what I mean. Yeah, that's what it's all about. Function in society. <laughs> he turned me on to Rush, <laughs> which I'll never forgive him for. I still don't yeah. get that very well. But um, anyway, yeah, and like his first girlfriend had been my lover oh wow you know not, started early not my girlfriend but like a woman <laughs> i was seeing and they met and they fell in love and they were together six years or right. something and that so, was when you thought hey this whole monogamy business i don't know yeah i mean i think i probably <laughs> just sort of naturally felt because i didn't really get that bent out of shape about it right. I, I did feel a little weird and right. the three of us were supposed to take a trip to new york together we mm-hmm. all lived in connecticut and mm-hmm. we were going to spend a day in new york and for some reason, I couldn't go. Mm-hmm. I was sick or something came up, whatever. So the two of them went and boom, that was mm-hmm. it. They were in love, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that the main reason I was a little not happy about it was that casual sexual partners aren't that easy to come by when you're a 15-year-old yeah. with braces and zits. You, when you're you know? a 15-year-old boy. Boy, yeah. exactly. I do mean that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Different scene for you, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so there was there was that which I think bummed me out. But even then, I recognized like, hey, they're in love. You know, they're this isn't about you know physical pleasure and mm-hmm. you know it, you know whatever I had with her was was uh, definitely low key compared mm-hmm. to what they were doing. Yeah. Anyway, why am I talking about this? Oh, right. So we're talking about education, and I was saying, isn't it interesting? That, you know, education is all about an older generation passing knowledge to a younger generation so you don't make these mistakes. Right. You know, they're avoidable, a lot of avoidable mistakes. Let me tell you how to avoid them, mm-hmm. right? You know, driving lessons and, you know, whatever. The whole education system is based on that. And yet, there's one area of life where not only do we not do that, mm-hmm. but you go to prison if you try to do that. Mm-hmm. Sexuality. Yeah. Now, it's so strange because I was we were talking about this... this um, spate of uh you know pretty hot women in their 20s who are having sexual relationships with these teenage boys and the women are going to prison wow you know and i remember being a teenage boy and that would have been like oh 
<laughs> I mean, seriously, <laughs> you know, where's the victim here? Yeah. You know, I mean, sure, if there's a power issue, you know, if she's the teacher, I'll fail you if you know. Right, right, right. But I don't think you need to threaten a 15-year-old boy, <laughs> you know. Yeah. yeah. So it's just an interesting exception to the the whole modus operandi of, of education, and well, and, and they're out there making all these mistakes. Yeah. You know? Well, and not just sexual relationships, but relationships of all kinds are not covered. Well, but I mean, I think non non sexual ones are like aren't by they? your parents. You mean? Yeah. Rather than in the education system. Yeah, although also in education, you know, like the, you know, anti-bullying That's true. stuff That's and, true. you know, how to, like, work together, you know, your lab partner and, right, you know, right, whatever. Right. Well, and, I missed the whole thing, so I don't Oh, know. you didn't do that. You know, there's, you get I'll lab partners and <laughs> you separate into groups and right, do right. group projects and all that kind of crap. Yeah. yeah. Which is basically just, like, the lazy, manipulative ones, you know, glomming onto someone who does their homework. Right. That's pretty much what that works out as. Life lessons. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, do you regret that? So, you didn't go to high school? You, Oh, that's terrible. So, you didn't go to the prom? You were never a cheerleader? Are you really sad about this? <laughs> it's so rare that somebody says, you didn't go to high school? That's you terrible. You poor thing. You missed all those Usually wonderful... Usually, people, like, people are like... Hazing rituals. So jealous yeah. <laughs> that I got to not be in high school. But So, who were your <laughs> friends then? Their neighbors? Um, I had a lot of friends who were in school, and we just would only spend time together after school, like you do with a lot of your friends when hmm. you're in school as well. So um, you, you never like did gym class? You never had well, a actually, lesbian teaching actually, you to climb a rope? <laughs> I or did something? go to school for one year, so I went. I, uh, it was always an option in my uh, household. Uh, you know, they basically kept me out of school, and then when I was old enough to be asked the question, they said, "Do you want to go to school this year?" And usually I said no, but then when I was 12, I was like, yeah, I do, because I wanted to go meet boys and, and stuff. you could just jump right into your normal grade level or age yeah. level or whatever? Yeah, well, there's different... So, the education standards um, are determined by state, hmm. and that includes homeschooling standards. So, it depends right. where you live. In Virginia, they just give you a test at the end of the year to see if you've kept up with whatever the school kids were doing. Right. So, like, literally, I would do maybe, you know... Leading up to the test, we would do math for an hour a day for a couple of weeks or something to make sure my math chops were up to snuff with whatever they were supposed to be learning. Your math chops were up to snuff. There's <laughs> yeah. a sentence for you. Those words that have never weird. been put into That's sequence true. before. <laughs> So I would take this test and, you know, I would pass it and then that's the equivalent of uh -huh. like a, you know, sixth grade degree or uh, whatever. Grade so, degree. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I enrolled in seventh grade when I was 12 or uh -huh. 11, something like that. And um, went to school for a year just to see what it was like. And I actually liked it. I enjoyed it, but I didn't like getting up early and I still don't like getting up uh, early. I hear that. I hear that. No, Sex at that. dawn is the only thing <laughs> anyone could ever convince me to do at dawn. <laughs> and maybe fishing once a year no, or something, but that's about I. it. Yeah. Unless I'm still awake from exactly. the night before. That's, that's a different a, kind of dawn. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, well, we've got about 15 minutes left here. Is there any Is there any chance, or 12 minutes, is there any chance we can get you to play a song? Sure. Would you do that? Yeah. yeah. I need to tune my guitar. Yeah, we'll pause, pause this. this. And, and I just hope that, you know, people will um, forgive us for the, the shitty sound quality of the airplanes and the the bumps on the table and all that, because I'm on the road. I didn't bring my mics and my whole setup. But, hey... 
it's not every podcast where we get a live performance. Hey. All right. That's from right. Carsey Blanton. So let's pause for that and then we'll come right back. Okay. There we go. All right. We're back with Carsey. No airplanes in the sky at the moment. <laughs> what are you going to play for us? Well, I'm going to do a live acoustic version of uh, Smoke Alarm, which we were talking about earlier. My favorite song <laughs> All right. for like the last month. I can't stop right. singing it to myself. And I wanted to mention this probably goes without saying but I'll go ahead and say it that um I find like when I'm thinking about my own death when I'm when I'm present to the fact that I'm gonna die is when I feel the most alive and the most sort Mm. of blessed to be having any experience at all right so I know there's a lot of you know a lot of people consider mortality this big scary thing and I sort of consider it a way to bring myself back to the rapture of, of being alive, as Joseph Campbell says. So um, that's really what the song is about. <clears throat> song that you've I mean how many times have you played that song do you think I don't know how long ago you were a few wrote hundred it. it's not that old so a few hundred when you were saying you don't have an audience and you know, I'm the only one sitting here looking at you I have an audience well they're behind you yeah well. <laughs> there are two other people in the room with us <laughs> and by the way did you notice no planes flew over that Magic. I noticed during your performance yeah we gotta keep you playing <laughs> um 
I noticed you smiling mm -hmm. a few times. And I was thinking, you know, is that just a habit because you've performed it so many times and so your face goes through the sequences of the, you know, <laughs> and, or are you still finding amusement in the song? Are you still finding, you know, that uh, a little pleasure at yeah. saying that thing, you know? I definitely am. I think if I perform and I don't feel that way, then I consider that a, a failed performance because uh, my purpose in performing my songs is not to just sort of curate this thing that already exists, right. but to speak the words as though I was speaking them to you for the first time. Right. So whenever I perform, you know, no matter how big the crowd is, what I'm trying to do is talk to each audience member as though I were saying a sentence that I just thought of, mm. <laughs> you know. So I think any emotion I show on my face is just me noticing what I wrote and think you know being present to it again because i have a new audience here yeah that isn't as familiar with it as i am right you know right yeah you know i often think that you see a great performer and you know i i've since the sex of dawn came out i've been giving some public performances and you know i've done you know 100 interviews or something and i answer the same questions again and again and you know so i, I get a little bit of a taste of what it must be like to sing the same song a hundred <laughs> times you know or to make you know on stage i make the same jokes a right. lot you know and <laughs> i still find them sort of amusing but i don't know if that's just because i'm a shallow person <laughs> <laughs> no, I think if you don't, then you need to write some new ones. You know, <laughs> yeah. Put them on the shelf for a while. Yeah. I have a friend um, who's a songwriter who told me this story that um, about the difference between a good gig and a bad gig, or a good time playing a song and a bad time. And when it's a bad night, you feel like you're pushing this thing along. And you're like, oh, I have to get to the next verse now, and right. then I have to push it to the next chorus. Right. And on a good night, you feel like it's just rolling it's along. you. And you can just sing whichever part of it you feel like at yeah. the moment. And yeah. I think a conversation is sort of the same thing. You know, it yeah. takes on a life of its own if there's any vibrancy or energy to it. Yeah. And if it's dead, then you want to stop having it. <laughs> I was with a woman once, and we just had this incredible sexual experience. And I said to her, you really pushed me over the edge there. And she said, I was pulling. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, That's that was cool. a memorable line from long yeah. ago. <laughs> <laughs> That's the woman, I don't know if, if you remember, at the beginning of Sex of Dawn, I defend a woman from a monkey attack. Oh, yeah. That was her. Wow. That's She's the kind famous. Of, you gotta, you got to defend a woman <laughs> like that from a monkey attack. Right. Not just any woman. She was, yeah. <laughs> she was, uh, when the book came out, she was taking a philosophy philosophy class in night school in Albuquerque and uh, it's about two months after the book came out and her teacher said uh, he was talking about learning to think outside the box and he said for example there's this new book about sexuality called Sex at Dawn blah 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 blah, blah. and she said have you read it? He's like, yeah. I said, I'm the woman who got attacked by the monkey. Nice. <laughs> take yeah. that. Take that. Yeah. You want to be outside the box. So are you going to play something else? Can we get a, a two for Tuesdays or whatever they sure. call that on the rock Never stations? Yeah. 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 What Absolutely. else would you like to play? Um, I'm going to do this song, Backbone, um, which I also talked about earlier. So... Um, this is really, it's sort of written from my perspective as a woman to a man, but I, I think it's a little more universal than that, so it's really about owning who you are. And did you consider calling it like a pair of balls, but that just didn't work as well? <laughs> well, it's more gendered that oh, way. Yeah, Backbone, yeah. everybody's got one of those. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. That's true. <laughs> All right. All right. <clears throat> 
We all know a man can be a delicate thing. He can be soft and sweet like sugar wrapped in butter. And I don't mind your company, but if you wanna make me sing, keep in mind that I am not your mother. Show me something I can rely on, or I would rather be alone. Talk to me, there's worry in your eyes. I wonder what on earth could you be so afraid of? I ain't gonna hurt you, honey. I ain't even half your size. So step on up and show me what you're made of. Show me something I can rely on. I would rather be.
The best thing about doing a podcast is having an excuse to hang out with someone like you and get you to play for me. <laughs> I, I could never do that if I was just asking Some you to guy. hang out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. That was wonderful. Thank you. My pleasure. Let's do it again sometime. All right. All right. So baby, what's a big deal? If you want to be free, say what you want to feel. Spend the night with me. I'm going to take you up in my arms. If we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms, we'll dance into the ground.